So we'll um, we'll get started with our interview today, and welcome to Dr. Judy Norman. And we're going to focus on women's health, sexual exploitation, medical care, with uh, Dr. Judy Norman. Uh, she's an American OBGYN who has been in Phnom Penh for eight and a half years, uh, teaching gynecology and women's health at Mercy Medical Center. So before that, she was in private practice in Virginia, and she's even served a tour in the U.S. Air Force. So thanks. That's excellent. And so during this talk, we're going to have a mixture of medical professionals as well as non-medical peeps joining us and watching the recording later on. And so we'll try not to get into too much shop talk uh, because I really want to be a bridge um, in a bridge of the gap between the medical professional and those who are not medical professionals. Um, but there's some important things to know related to our field. And so I want you as non-medical practitioners, people are serving with survivors or just wanted to know how to get involved, you know, how to be a better advocate and care for people who've been abused, exploited, or trafficked. So we'll get to Judy now. And so why don't you give a brief introduction of yourself? Yeah, uh, good to see you all. And uh, thanks for being here. This is evening for me. So in whatever time zone you're in, um, I'm an OBGYN physician. I went to Eastern Virginia Medical School. Uh, my husband and I worked in Ohio for residency. We were in Virginia where I was active duty Air Force uh, starting August of 9-11, uh, August of 2001. So had an interesting uh, time in the military. Um, then I was in private practice in Virginia for a few years and um, home with four toddlers. Um, my husband worked at an indigent care clinic in Williamsburg, working with migrant farm workers and a lot of undocumented um, workers. And I did volunteer work at that clinic as well. Um, and then we were looking for overseas service and we came to Mercy Medical Center specifically because it's a teaching hospital. Um, many of the mission hospitals we had previously been to were um, volume oriented. They saw a lot of patients but um, the culture wouldn't change after they left. So our goal was really to help build up a team of nationals who can carry on the work long after we're here. So we have a sustainability plan and an exit strategy as we've started. So we're now in our eighth year here. The hospital has been here for 12 years. Um, my husband's the medical director. He's internal medicine pediatrics. And I am, as she said, a OB-GYN physician. We don't do obstetrics at our hospital in terms of delivery. We do prenatal care and uh, primary care women's health. So I started at Mercy Medical Center teaching my residents and ended up in trafficking really when we were in the process of language learning. Um, I would just go to the hospital once a week to practice on patients and a lot of them ended up being our staff. And through our own staff at the hospital, I found out about the scenario in Cambodia and the culture here, um, kind of the cultural acceptance of abuse, of brothels, of KTVs and of trafficking. And that's how I got into kind of activism and active work in the anti-trafficking field. Excellent. And just to um, clarify, KTV, that's the karaoke bars. 
karaoke bars, which are brothels. Yes. Right. Yeah. But just to clarify, so we're not getting lost in the alphabet soup. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, so that's, yeah. So how did you, did you end up, so you were, were introduced to the milieu and the need there. And so what were the steps towards integrating that into your practice or your work there mm -hmm. at Mercy Medical? Yeah. So, you know, we started out as learners, which is so very important. We were studying the language and the culture and learning at the hospital. Um, so talking with staff, having some patients brought in who had been survivors of trafficking. I started to meet uh, workers who are staff at various NGOs through the city who would bring patients to us for care. And so I became more aware of the, the scope of trafficking and the um, needs of our patients. Uh, so I went to a couple conferences. Dr. Welch came to our hospital and actually tra trauma-informed care to our staff. Um, culturally, it was a very difficult thing for our staff, especially in a Christian facility. They tend to be quite sheltered or, um, or judgmental. Um, so it was an education for them to, under to see a young pregnant girl or a boy with anal condyloma as victims rather than people who did something bad. So having Catherine come that very first year was really helpful to us and educating our staff on compassionate care was really where we started. We started just with whatever patients come to MMC, how can we care for them? As the reputation grew that we were a compassionate facility and we started to work with more of the NGOs in the city, um, we recognized a greater scope of need. Um, there are a lot of small NGOs with really good hearts who want to rescue people, who want to take care of people. They want to start a dorm. They want to give them job training, but they weren't meeting their physical needs. Um, and what I found is when, when a girl is suffering with a physical ailment, when a woman is sick, she can't learn a new job. She cannot pursue her education. She can't go back to her community. So we were really trying to help these good-hearted people address their physical needs so that they could go on to long-term healing and hopefully reintegration over time. So I did, again, a lot more research. Um, my best source is the World Health Organization. I try not to use sources from the U.S. because they're not applicable to a low- and middle-income country. So I go mainly with the WHO resources and they mainly come from India. India has done some wonderful groundbreaking work in uh, care of trafficked persons and abuse victims and they do a lot of education. So there are very good resources in the WHO and I just read a lot. I went to conferences, asked a lot of questions. I started to work with the, um, the United States um, physician who works with the Cambodian government here. She was an actually a STI, a sexually transmitted infections expert from the United States. So I met her at my son's soccer game because God has control of all these things. So we bumped into each other at a soccer game, started talking. I got involved with her with the national STI protocols. And in doing so, we discussed how to help traffic victims and also sex workers who, who come through the drop-in centers and what is the best way to give them care. Um, and out of that, we developed um, 
we adapted what was already developed from the WHO, which is a presumptive and syndromic treatment, which we can talk about more later. We talked about trauma-informed care, and we we talked we started working with the NGOs doing um, team training for their staff. So we trained a group of Cambodian medical workers who would go to the different NGOs and teach their staff how to have conversations with these young people so that they're not afraid and that so they can express their physical needs and get them met. Right. That's so, oh my, there's so many places to jump on from there, but I'm just going to tag on just at the very end as a segue, because that's so important to train the staff to be able to deal because you have staff of these other anti-trafficking NGOs who are sheltered and don't know how to talk about our basic anatomy and physiology, let alone anatomy and physiology that's been sort of uh, disturbed by the sexual exploitation and, and, and the, and the lives that these women or boys or whoever been living. And so how is that, um, has that been received? Have you been able to go throughout Phnom Penh or around even Cambodia? The whole country, yeah. yeah. You know, it's very, it's, it's, it's such a different thing than what I, I'm doing a lot less hands-on patient care and a lot more of the kind of secondary and tertiary education, which is so much more culturally appropriate. I am a white woman from America who's old, who has adult kids. The, the young girls and women who need the care can't relate to me at all. But at our hospital, we have a team of young Cambodian staff, female physicians, nurses, and the men are really on board too. Um, and then we go and train staff at other centers and we're actually on the national training program for cervical cancer and STIs. So our young Cambodian staff goes and trains other staff. It has been remarkable how receptive women in this culture are. If you ask, they would say it's a very conservative culture. And in public spaces, they would never address sexually transmitted infections. They wouldn't talk about our body parts. They wouldn't have names for their own anatomy. Um, but when you have a small group of women and you get together with them in a safe setting, it's amazing the conversations that come up. We even had a recent outreach with, um, it's a local group called CHAM. They're Islamic uh, Cambodian ethnic minority group here very conservative, quite reserved from the Khmer ethnic majority. But when our team of young women went to that community of 35 women and met with them in a small group there just to do basic health education, they were amazed at the reception of the women and how eager they were to ask questions. They want to understand what's going on with their body. They want to be well. They want to be safe. So a lot of it has to do with stepping back. My job is to educate educators who then educate others. And, and there's a lot of cultural sensitivities that come into play there. I've studied language for eight years, but I'm still gonna mess up. So it's much better that I'm teaching my team and then the team is going out and teaching others. That requires a lot of humility on my part. Um, I don't get to be the one in front getting all the glory, um, but I get a lot of satisfaction watching this team uh, 
educate and watching those educators then go out and educate others. This year, despite COVID, we've been able to work with another NGO that has peer educators in the garment factories. This has been a dream of mine for five years. So uh, garment factories in Cambodia employ about 400,000 women from the ages of 30 to 45. They are not technically trafficked women, but there's a lot of sexual exploitation at those places of work. About 60 to 70% of women say there's sexual exploitation in one way or another. So we are now... I'm sorry, just to interrupt, meaning meaning that they would be sexually abused, taken advantage of by employers or other staff members, things like that, or... like. The sewing machines, they have to have sex yep. if they want to get the machine fixed. And if okay. they want to get their machine fixed to keep their job, they have to do that. Yep. Okay. Horrible things like yep. that that we could never really imagine. Yeah. I just want to clarify for listeners what, 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 you know, some examples of what that looks like. Yep. Right. So we are doing some education with peer educators. And a lot of our goal is to get community awareness and educate. The women need to know this is called abuse. Mm-hmm. That is called violence, that's not okay. Because in this culture, there were laws that were taught in schools until 2007 called Chapsre. And they taught in schools about girls that they should accept violence at home, that men are the boss, that their men's bodies are gold and women's bodies are cloth, meaning men don't get damaged, but women do, and they're, they're no longer worthwhile. So there was a lot of cultural and background beliefs that lead women not to realize they're being abused and exploited. They don't even know that what's being, what's happening to them is wrong. So we're doing really basic teaching. This is called abuse. There are laws to protect you. This is what you can do about it. Again, not what I thought as an OB-GYN and surgeon. Oh, this is, I'm not doing that. We're, we're, we're trying to give people tools to help themselves. Um, and again, there's a lot of humility involved in this and me having to learn so much and really step back out of my cultural assumptions and out of what I think women should know about themselves um, and learn from the women who are here. So back up and how did, how did that happen that you were able to get into the garment industry? Was that uh, through one particular factory or or? Is there an organization that oversees some of this uh, for multiple factories or companies? And, and how, how did that connection work? Because I think this is really inspiring and, and um, perhaps maybe turn on some light bulbs for some other people. I, I learned this from my daughter, who's a very perseverant person. I just kept calling and writing emails and said, hey, will you meet with me? Hey, will you meet with me? So I went through the whole list and you can Google everything now. You can find the NGOs that are working in the factories. You can find people. And I just started asking and saying, hey, we have this to offer. We have free health education and training. We would like to share that with you. When would you like to meet with us? And it's amazing if you keep asking people, hey, we have free stuff to bring to you. They say yes. (laughs) So... So we just started meeting, we met with, um, I don't wanna say right now because some of these NGOs are political and private, Mm -hmm. but we met with several different NGOs one-on-one and then we met as small groups and then we've started to develop a relationship with various uh, factory organizations. Some are um, political, some are legal-based and some are health-based and some are education. So the main one we're working with right now is CPAR, 
and they do factory peer education. Um, they get libraries and factories, they get um, basic human rights education, what are legal rights and, and healthcare education. So now we're, we're educating our team who's educating their educators who are educating the women of the factories. That's and, it's, and it's multiplication of effort, um, which is really exciting. Yeah. yeah, it's phenomenal. And to have a combination of different sectors working together just for on behalf of the women. And when you teach those women, they're teaching their peers and they're teaching their daughters and they're teaching their sons <laughs> about and that, this and change. You know, this is going to be a change of culture, hopefully. Cultural change takes years and mm. it takes, you know, grassroots community awareness. And so we're, we're tackling it from the post-trafficked rescuing NGOs where we're really working for rehabilitation and restoration for the trafficked women. And we're working at it from prevention and education from with women and families. And we're, we're starting to get men engaged and involved. Um, I think what's been exciting for me personally, um, some of the young men who are doctors and nurses at our clinic are passionate about women's health care. Um, for the first time this year, our resident interns are three men who are all able to do female exams and they don't say, oh, she didn't want a man. They say, hey, can you look at my VIA? I think I need to treat this. They are comfortable talking to women. They know how to have a gentle conversation so that the women aren't afraid to tell them what's going on. That's fantastic. Because we trauma-informed. It's been so exciting to me because it's taken years to get to the point yep. where our men are on board. Um, so I think part of community education and anti-trafficking awareness is you have to get buy-in from the men and the culture. Yep. It's still a huge problem here. This came in the news today in Cambodia. One of the senior ranking officials in Cambodia who has the title of His Excellency beat his wife and she reported it. The prime minister just stripped him of the title of his excellency today because of spousal abuse. Wow. That's the first time that has happened like in all of Southeast Asia. That's huge. Yeah. It was huge. Yeah. And the reaction of the women at our hospitals like, oh, that's, that's not okay. And somebody yeah. cares. Yeah. So again, education, education, education. We have medical protocols. You'll all get links about that at the end, about how to treat STIs, yeah. about what means to do anti-trafficking informed care. There's a lot of good data about that. But the number one need is education and, and grassroots cultural change. Yep. And we're seeing glimmers of hope. Yep. And, 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 and modeling by the leaders which is why yep. this case is so huge is because you can have grassroots, but then when it's modeled that this, this politician was um, now stripped of his honorary title and that's monitoring. So I'm going to shift a little bit because I think, you know, some of our people are really going to wonder, like get into the nitty gritty, like, especially yeah. regarding your care of women who are in the milieu. Um, yeah. You know, those who are in sexual expectation, there's traffic, you know, we're, we're going to kind of throw those all in to, we're not going to get down to the parse out who's trafficked and right. who's in prostitution and who's right. exploited. We're not going to 
get into those. Um, I'm going to split those hairs now, but you know, I, I think one of the questions I have and some of us also have like, do you hold clinics in the milieu or do you have clinics specifically for these women or do they happen at an unusual hours or um, sort of remote clinics? What does that look like? Yeah, we've tried all of the above. So there's one place called Heart of Darkness, which is kind of the main um, big brothel area of the city. Um, and there's a drop-in center we work with. Uh, they're called Alabaster House, and they do a lot of outreach to the street workers. And actually, a lot of these women have families, have babies who need care at night. Um, they provide a place for them to sleep and to shower. Um, so our team has gone to Alabaster House to do drop-in clinics there, and we've now taught their team how to do some of the presumptive and syndromic treatment, and they have a book. So they're now actually independently doing the presumptive and syndromic treatment, which you guys will get to, but it's... Um, yeah, why don't you, just, why don't you describe that right now? That'd, that'd so be great. this is all a WHO protocol, and there is some country-specific detail that you'd want to look up. Presumptive treatment is basically anybody who's been raped or sex work. Um, you do presumptive treatment for gonorrhea and chlamydia every three months. Um, and it's uh, specifically with azithro and ceftriaxone, or if you can't give an injection, cefixime. Uh, they're single dose, one-time dosing that's highly effective. We never, ever, ever do monotherapy because we want to avoid drug resistance. Um, syndromic treatment is if they have discharge, is it itchy, is it smelly, does it look like this? And they, we have a color-coded kit. So again, non-medical people can do this and it's color-coded. So the symptoms have a color and you give this little packet of medication. All of the packets, except for herpes, they're all same-day treatment therapies and they're all safe, safely used in pregnancy. So that's all very important. So we're not having to do pregnancy tests. We're not having to do physical exams. Women who are in the trafficking industry or have been trafficked or have been abused or who are sex workers don't necessarily want a physical exam. Um, And for some traumatized people, doing a GYN exam is, is more harmful than helpful. And so what the WHO developed is a very practical means of meeting the immediate healthcare needs through this protocol. And then they can come for, after you've built that trust relationship, if they have ongoing problems or further issues, you can, you can follow up and deal with problems over time. It's less overwhelming for, for patients and victims, and it allows us to bring treatment to them when they may not have the means to come to us at the hospital. Julian exams are hard to do. You have to have some tools. And so we're trying to make it possible to, to take care of women where they are. Um, So, so and then there's referral or follow-up. And so if there's something that needs more attention and then they can always refer to you to follow up in your clinic where you have those tools and it's more comfortable and things like that. And, and so the NGOs you're working with can they can do this treatment, they can then refer to you and you can follow up. And I always found it was really helpful to break the barrier, you know, as a doctor who's going into the milieu and doing the treatment in the milieu where the women are or where the boys are. And then when they have to come out and visit you in your clinic, then there's barriers have already been either broken down or at least minimized so that when they see you in the clinic, they're like, 
okay, they feel a lot more comfortable that way. It does think. Um, Dr. Rexame is my um, senior. She's She's been with us for six years. She's a phenomenally compassionate Kamai female doctor who's excellent. And she's been the one who's gone to Alabaster House several times. And it was hard for her. Um, she comes from a third generation Christian family. So I introduced her to a world that she, she really didn't know about. Um, and she's been amazing and really developed a heart of compassion and love for these women. Um, and she went to Alabaster House a couple times and did the drop-in center. And one woman came back twice and was kind of skirting around the edges and was kind of not really engaging. And at the end of the second clinic, she said, can I come to you later? So we gave her the referral. She came to our hospital later and had quite a few pretty significant issues that all needed kind of in-depth medical care. But she came because she had seen Rexame twice. Rexame has this beautiful smile. She's always smiling. She's very joyful, incredibly welcoming. And she had gone to this pretty horrible place where it's, it's, it's a dark, depressing place. And she brings joy with her and she brings acceptance with her. And this young woman felt so safe mm. to come see her. And when she left, what she told her is, I never knew before that I was a person of value. Mm. That's we precious. just were weeping that she, yeah. she, she found out that she was valuable, mm -hmm. that she was a person of worth because somebody treated her as a person of worth. Mm. And so again, the, the medical care can happen over time. We're trying to hit the big things. How do we prevent sepsis? How do we prevent PID? How do we prevent death? Let's, let's do that now. And that's what the presumptive and syndromic treatment does. We try and get blood tests for HIV, hepatitis B and C, and syphilis um, as quickly as possible. We have pretty much endemic syphilis here. Mm -hmm. um, HIV rate very low, but syphilis is quite high, and we've mm -hmm. seen a lot of it in our primary care clinic. So um, the last couple times we got a um, a finger stick test. So there's a rapid syphilis HIV mm -hmm. test that rate isn't great, but at least allows us to get something started. Mm -hmm. um, so we've been doing the rapid HIV syphilis tests along with the presumptive and syndromic treatment, which allows us to move forward even more um, when we're outside the hospital. Um, and again, you add layers on as you have resources. We now do our HPV testing. Um, so if people can't come to the clinic and get a GYN exam for cervical cancer, we bring swabs to them. They can do self-swab for mm -hmm. HPV testing. And then if it's positive, they can come to us later for a VIA and, and treatment for cervical cancer prevention. So all of these things go together. Um, we've added, we started going to the NGOs and going to the outreaches education only. And then we added presumptive and syndromic treatment and our pharmacy worked well with us to make kits. And then we took the kits to the various NGOs. And we do have a team that is dedicated. There are 56 different anti-trafficking NGOs here. And we now have a medical team that's full-time job is going to the different NGOs doing healthcare training. And so the sex STI and women's health training is part of their whole training package, including first aid and primary care stuff. Um, so that team goes around and they, they do a team training. They do follow-up training. They're available for questions. And again, we're the backup to the backup. So sure. we're their backup. Um, but again, when you've, when you've taught a group and you've spent several years with them and then they're teaching others, you've got a network that's being built. And so this is all built up over eight or nine years. Um, 
so the anti-trafficking NGOs have a medical team exclusively for them to do the dormitory healthcare and they can refer to us with problems. Yep. We're doing outreach. Some are strictly health education and awareness. Some are health education awareness and presumptive and syndromic treatment. And some of the outreaches are full, um, full medical outreaches. And then we also have a monthly women's health outreach at MMC that's the full blown, um, we do all the blood work, we do physical exam, we do the VIAs, um, and that's all by grants and funding. We're trying to make these um, available to all women. So right now we still don't charge for them. Um, to be sustainable long-term, we're trying to look at ways, uh, I would love to just have a grant that keeps yep. us running forever, um, but I also, think about long-term sustainability. Some of our NGOs have healthcare finances. So we've been working with NGOs that have the resources mm -hmm. so they can give us some funds to help cover a part of the cost. Note to donors, um, support. I know, we just keep <laughs> working on ways to make this happen, yeah. Note to um, donors for those other uh, you know NGOs that are working uh, with trafficking survivors that ask your donors for funds for their healthcare. Healthcare. Um, yep. It's huge because I have one group here that I've been working with for years and they do not have funds for healthcare. Yep. And so we've been going to them. I mean, even to get them transported from their center to the hospital is too much. So, but last year I went over budget because we paid for buses. We were, we were, we were just busing women in and paying for their healthcare. And at some point we need to share those costs. Sure. Um, sure. So we're kind of doing everything we can. We, we'd love to make awareness happen that, that, dorms rescue centers yeah they need things for healthcare. well and then they we can do it and you know yeah. and the and the thing yeah. is is that with a little bit of training this is what i was trying to do too and with a little bit of training you can be like you know the quote unquote where there is no doctor um yeah and just to be aware and know when to refer but i i just want to point out for everyone out there that you know when you think about this is truly out of the box thinking i mean this isn't just you know Dr. Norman, you know, doing the work um, and doing the treatment only, this is, this is in their learning. You know, she's a lead learner and she's a lead teacher and you've been able to go to all kinds of places. I mean, truly out of the box. It's not just medical care. That's been a key and very important part, but you've done a lot of training, health training, talking about women's health, but women's dignity and women's right not to be violated. And all of that is wrapped up together. And so yeah. I, did, I just want to point out that it's not just, you know, she's doing the work or she's doing the, the specific medical care, but she's training her staff to be able to do the job. I mean, and I think I know you would admit that. And I admit that too, that your, your Cambodian staff, my Thai staff could, could yeah, do this um, so much more effectively than we can, but we can yeah. give them the tools to take and the confidence to do that. Um, so and uh, um, that was a great question from Carla. I'm going to jump yep. into that. The, there is a really good protocol. If you so look at I'm sorry, going to read the question. Does the, oh. the question is, uh, does the presumptive treatment come as a prepackaged kit we can order? Not from us. Um, so what we did, so we took all the WHO data and then out of India, again, there was a good plan where they had the color coded kits. And so we just took that, translated it into Kamai, took it to our pharmacy and how to make the kits. Um, and so now all the uh, NGOs that we work with, they have that as a resource. Um, 
also, it, I don't think there's an online international order, but it's, it's easy to make happen yourself. You do have to look at your own country's laws in terms of medications, prescriptions. We went, I actually joined the national protocol on STIs so that we could get the presumptive and syndromic treatment approved for non-medical people to give because in the World Health Organization, that's how it's designed. So you really have to make sure you're not breaking laws or getting stuff of an NPO in trouble. Um, so, and every country is different in the way they handle that. Um, so, so we did a lot of research and did a lot of asking and I joined the national committee and spent two years on their task force in order to, to get this to happen. Again, it takes a lot of time. There's a lot of investment and time to get these things to happen, um, but it works. So when you, and I have to say at this point now, our staff is so good. So this past year with COVID, we were out of the country. We got on the other side of the border. I want to say my team, but it's not my team. They, that the staff of MMC, who aren't mine at all, they are government trainers. They are trainers of trainers for the government cervical cancer program. They are my female nurse, who's the head of our program, is training Cambodian male physicians on cervical cancer prevention and STI treatment. Our women are going to various provinces and they are part of the national training program to train midwives, doctors, and nurses on, on STIs and cervical cancer prevention. They did this this whole year without me. So I get to do things like this and increase awareness. I, I initiate the meetings with some of the NGOs in country to further our relationships with other organizations. But the actual work and the teaching, they got it covered. Yep. But that's a tribute to do, to you and your training and your uh, your trust in your staff. And they have trust in themselves. Yeah. They have, yeah. I think a lot of it is, is they have again, confidence, empowering mm -hmm. your staff. That's yep. a, that's a, such a politically correct word now. I don't yep. usually use it, but, but it's true. We have a phenomenal group. And I think when you give them the opportunity to succeed, they succeed because they really want to. Yep. If I was trying to micromanage and control how everything happened, it would look different for yep. certain. I would do yep. things a little bit differently, but their success is in ownership over the program and in ownership over the teaching and they go to teaching without me. Yep. They don't need me anymore. Right. They can get, I can get telegram, WhatsApp and Facebook messaging anywhere in the world. So yep. pretty much wherever I've been in the world, they contact me if they have questions. Yep. Um, they know what they're doing. And, and there's a huge part of that, again, humility for us Western folks who think that we're, we're we kind of have an idea that we are saving everybody. Yeah. <laughs> we're not, we're learning alongside, we're growing together. Um, sure. We're educating one another. Yep. Yeah. Um, it's been great. It's, it's very humbling. That's great. <laughs> so before we get to the specific questions that are coming from participants, I, I want to wrap up for the recording part. I want, I want you to, so there's going to be people here or people watching what would you say to the young people who are inspired mm -hmm. by watching this or that know what you do or just want to get involved in human trafficking or, I mean, anti-human trafficking work? And, you know, what, what would you say, um, what would you say to people who are yeah. looking ahead and want to get involved? Number one is be a learner. Uh, don't presume you know anything. I, I knew less than nothing. I've had to learn after 25 years of education. I've pretty much had to start from scratch when I got here. Have a learner's heart, have a learner's attitude, 
ask questions. Do your research. Where are you in your community? You don't need to be in Cambodia or Thailand or Germany. Where do you live right now? What's going on in your local community? Ask questions in your local community. Find out what is the situation in your state, in your city? How can you be engaged where you are? What can you do for awareness? How can we make boys aware to be safe? How can we make girls aware to be safe? How can we improve direct and clear communication about sexual health and about rights and about what constitutes violation of rights? Do what you can do where you are. That's right. As you are a learner and as you learn more and as you grow in experience, you find more opportunities to teach more. Right. And, And it grows with you. Exactly. Exactly. And just stressing that anti-trafficking work isn't the rescue isn't, I mean, it's, that's like a really minuscule part of the work and it's, and it's really working with people moving upstream to prevent and getting involved. So, yeah. We would all much rather not have rescue, right? We would all much rather have total prevention. And I tell you with the men, you guys focus on educating men. And I will say this, we've talked about this before. 90% of the violence and the physical abuse is happening from men. But worldwide, if you look statistically at human trafficking, 30 to 50% of the management, the the monetary trafficking is is women. So this isn't just men are evil, women are victims all the time. There are men and boys who are very much victims of trafficking and there are women who are perpetrators. So we're not um, man bashing and we're not blaming one group of people. Um, But the the predominant physical violence is done by men and education and uh, changing the way people think again, changing the way a culture thinks about men and women, changing the way a culture thinks about violence. And it's, it's in our Western cultures too. If we can have people celebrating 30 shades of gray, you got to wonder, well, where, where's your, what is your thought about violence and what is your, how are you accepting this as fun and what TV shows are you watching and what movies are you watching? Yeah. What clothes are you buying? Things play into the violence that's accepted in our culture. So if we are participants in the violence that's educating our kids and the people in our culture, then we're participating in the trafficking. Well, yeah, it's, it's being aware of how are we frogs in the, in the ever increasing temperature of the water. And so any, yep. anything, any last thoughts um, that you want to say before we uh, get to the um, Q&A or anything? I mean, you, this has been brilliant. There's lots more to say. I just want to make sure we, we'll have to have you on again because we, we'll just go on and riff, riff more and more. We'll, we'll have you okay. back on again, but I want to make sure we have plenty of time for questions. But any, any take home message, be a learner. Yep. All right. That's right. Be a learner. Okay. For, for people watching on YouTube, this has been fantastic. We're going to cut it off now and uh, have some private Q&A for the people who've been waiting uh, to ask their questions. And so thank you for joining. Thank you for listening. And uh, we'll see you here next time when the doctor is in.